Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. In general, the Middle Ages in Europe get a bit of a bad rap. More recent historians have established that society wasn't as stagnant as we once thought. Advancements were made, borders changed, and exciting and meaningful lives were lived. Europe wasn't the center of attention, but it wasn't all bad. Except that when it was, it was spectacularly bad. The 14th century in particular was an incredibly grim time for many reasons, not least of which was the Black Death, in which a significant percentage of the world's population perished in four short years. Just a programming note, while HI-101 is pretty solidly in PG territory and we'll be holding to that standard for this episode, it does contain what I suppose are best characterized as mature themes. It's hard to talk about pandemics without running into some very challenging and occasionally incredibly icky information. So with that mild warning in mind, let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. Hey, Colin. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Um, it's been a little bit of a rough week or two, though, researching this topic, because you came to me and said, hey, Adam, why don't we talk about the Black Death? <laughs> <laughs> and to refrain from putting all the blame on you... I turned around and said, sure, sounds good. Hey, I gave you two topics. And this was seen as the... Uh, uh, the better option. The, I, the safer choice was what I think the I... The safer choice, yeah. Specifically said about that, um, uh, which is regrettable, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I, I think we're up to the challenge. I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Might need a bit of a hug afterwards, but <laughs> we'll be okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a grim topic because, I mean, the the name Black Death kind of kind of says it all, doesn't it? That's actually a name that was contemporary to the plague itself. That isn't even one of those like, oh, we put this on it long, long after. Really, within the first couple of years of the Black Death, people were calling it the Black Death. Oh, jeez. So that's that's telling you something about yeah. where we're going with all of this. <laughs> um, part of the part of the difficulty about talking about this though is that. It's a lightning fast uh, occurrence in history, and and it's tricky filling that out to a point where it's like, okay, well, w what's going on here? What's the context for it? Why is this important? What does it lead to? All of that stuff, and that's really where the meat of this episode is going to be. Right, is is that discussion? Because really, the story from start to finish here is. In 1357, there was a four-year period in which between 75 million and 200 million people died in Europe of a horrible, horrible disease. 
All right. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's the been really end. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, it really was kind of like that, especially for people at the time, because it's like, what is what is happening to us? Right. They did not understand this. And so I think really what we need to kind of back up and and understand a little bit more before we really get into it is what medicine was like at the time, what European society was like at the time, and what exactly this disease is that we're dealing with. That third one seems like it should be really easy to pin down. Everyone knows it's the bubonic plague. It's pretty straightforward. It's actually not that straightforward. Hmm. There are a number of people who disagree with what exactly the plague was. And part of the problem there is that medicine has changed so much that the records aren't entirely clear on what exactly is going on. We can talk a little bit more about some of the alternative theories later on. For the purposes of this show, though, we're going to go ahead and say that the Black Death was caused by the bubonic plague, because that is the overwhelmingly majority opinion on this topic. And it seems to be the best fit for um, what it is that actually happened to Europe and Asia in the 14th century. So just with that disclaimer aside, you know, there are alternative um, proposed explanations for this pandemic. It was aliens. Got it. That's not one of the main ones, but, you know, we could work with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we're, we're just going to go ahead and, and for the purposes of this discussion, go ahead and, and, and call this the bubonic plague. What the heck is the bubonic plague? Do you know anything about it? I don't. I kind of picked it because I don't. Okay. But that means you're going to have to describe it. We're going to get right into it. Okay. So <laughs> the really interesting thing about human diseases, and I, I first came across this when I did the, uh, the episode I did uh, on smallpox with a very good friend of mine, uh, Jillian Weber, who has never been on the podcast since. And it's because, of, no, it's because, she, <laughs> it's because she moved away. But it's been a little bit harder to schedule her back on. Um, it was a very difficult episode to, uh, to record. So what we discovered is that like a lot of diseases are relatively recent as to when they became uh, endemic to humans. Hmm. And that's because really you get two extremes with most diseases either they are so incredibly virulent and deadly and contagious that they kind of burn themselves out too quickly in that you know everyone that they infect just dies faster than they can actually pass this disease along or else they're too bad at uh spreading and reproducing to really make any sort of major impact on the overall health of the human population. So when you get something like a, a cold, that's not really a problem for most human beings because, you know, yeah, it's everywhere, but it's not going to kill you. You have to be very sick otherwise for a cold to really have any any, any uh, fatal effect on you, right? So you need to be uh, not too fast acting, mm -hmm. very contagious, mm -hmm. and fatal. Uh, you don't need to be fatal, but that's the kind of disease that tends to make the headlines when you're talking history. Right. And, and then the one other thing is you want an incubation period. So you don't want people to become sick as soon as if you're if you are a bacterium or a virus. You don't want people to become or, or whatever host you're working with to become sick immediately because you need a chance to uh, reproduce and to um, spread. And it turns out that 
if you cause any symptoms whatsoever in a host, that host's uh, immune system learns to deal with you very quickly. And in most cases, our bodies just kind of adapt to things until uh, until they're not viable, or until we're not viable hosts for that virus or bacteria. The most successful diseases find that sweet spot. And, and uh, smallpox is, is kind of the best example. It's got this really long incubation period in which you're very, very contagious, um, but completely asymptomatic. Right. Uh, very, very nasty stuff. But even stuff like the common cold, you know, it takes generally Couple about days. two days, yeah. about two days after you're exposed to it before you produce any symptoms. But you're contagious for those two days, plus usually two or three days after you just develop symptoms. You need that like a little bit of time to spread it around before you're laid up in bed. When we first find evidence of, of the bubonic plague, uh, the, the bacteria that causes the bubonic plague, it's, it's, uh, it's known as uh, Yersinia pestis, Y pestis. We first find evidence of it in human beings uh, over 5,000 years ago, but it doesn't seem to have been terribly deadly at that point in time. It's really only about 3,000 years ago that it started really spreading, uh, that we have any real evidence of. It seems to have originated kind of in the, uh, the Russian steppes kind of thing. Records go back that far? This is this is uh, uh, archaeological records. We uh-huh. we kind of dig up remains and do DNA testing on them to see if we can find uh, records of of diseases. This is uh, this is kind of outside of the purview of history, but a lot of what we're going to be talking about is technically a little bit outside of history today, um, mostly because well, well we'll talk about it a little bit later, but because modern medicine basically starts in about 1858, right. and any time before then, we're dealing with some. Uh, by definition, pseudoscientific practices. I, I mean, we, we didn't understand the idea of, of um, cell theory up until 1858 and the idea that infections were being caused by, you know, these tiny single-celled organisms or even more confusingly, viruses, which aren't even actually technically alive. They're bits of RNA that insert themselves into our cells and, and reprogram them. It, it gets a little gets a little buck wild and a little bit hard to understand if you don't have a microscope and lots of scientific knowledge and things like that. And for that reason, no, we don't have really good historical records of these diseases. <laughs> Medicine is, is, is pretty crude uh, in, in right. the years that we're going to be starting off talking about. It seems that that 3,000 years ago, Mark, likely what happened is uh, a bacteriophage. Have you ever heard of bacteriophages? No. Bacteriophages are really interesting in a really creepy way there's the there are these viruses that will infect bacteria and insert bits of dna into the bacteria's own dna and cause the bacteria to change some characteristic about themselves in that virus's favor so generally they'll hijack a, a bacterium and cause that bacterium to reproduce more copies of that virus but in doing so it can have unintended genetic effects on the bacteria creepy is right they 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 look like uh, an alien from a video game circa 1995. They are like little spiders with like a diamond on top of a coil. <laughs> uh, it, I'm not even joking. That's great. But it seems that what it developed the ability to do, bacteriophage or not, is to develop something called a biofilm. And it's basically just like a membrane. And what it uses this to do, what it used it to do then and what it uses it to do now, is... The Y pestis bacterium is most comfortable in rodent hosts. 
Okay. So I, I think most people are kind of familiar with the with the general vector of of the the plague being rats to fleas to humans, right? Yeah. yeah. And and that's still true today, and it was then. Although it wasn't always necessarily rats, it's actually quite comfortable in a lot of different rodents. Um, marmots were the original main car- carrier of them. Yeah. As long as they've got some rodents that are resistant to them, so that where they can reproduce asymptomatically, and some that do die from from this uh, from this infection, which allows the uh, the the bacteria to move to to migrate from host to host, they'll be fine. So this biofilm, what it does is it blocks up the uh, digestive tract of various animals. So what it does in the fleas that are that are living off these rodents is it it stores all the blood that they're drinking in the foregut. So it's before it actually gets into the flea's stomach. It'd be the equivalent of of drinking something, and it only gets down to like maybe your sternum, and that's about as far as it gets. Okay. And so the blood stays inside the flea um, undigested, where the bacteria is able to reproduce. And the flea, being all clogged up by this biofilm, gets very uncomfortable for obvious reasons. And the way a flea clears something like that out is it finds a new host, bites that host, essentially vomits up the blood into the new host and drinks fresh blood. Instant gross blood transfusion. Yeah. And so you're infecting the new host, you are still carrying some of the bacteria, and basically the flea continues doing this until it dies. Likewise, the rodents that are being infected are also having their digestive tracts uh, affected. They tend to kind of not be able to eat whatever they've been eating. So they'll, they'll eat it and they kind of engorge themselves, but they're not actually digesting anything. And so they'll continue to eat and eat, which keeps them in one spot, which makes it easier for the fleas to get to them. Smart disease. It's weird because you have to be careful not to assign too much agency to something like bacteria, right? Right. It's 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 a lot of very coincidental stuff happening all together, and there's a lot of variations of this that uh, that were tried and were not successful. This is not a a malevolent force by any means. It's simply another creature trying to survive. It just uh, happens to be very contrary to our own survival. So, aliens. Basically. Okay. I'm following you. <laughs> The crazy thing, though, is that the fleas aren't the only way to transmit Y. pestis. Let's go down the list. A human being can con- uh, contract the disease by being bitten by one of these fleas, obviously the, the most common one. They can contract the disease from uh, droplet contact, which means any sneezing or coughing, uh, similar to uh, a cold. It can be contracted from physical contact with uh, with someone who has the disease, uh, generally because it often causes you know ulceration or or other open sores, but because also because the bacteria can be like right on the skin itself, and can live outside the host for a relatively good amount of time. Also, contact with corpses is particularly uh, virulent. You can get it from indirect contact on like a, a surface. So somebody with the disease touches a table, you touch it half an hour later, you can contract the disease that way. Airborne transmission. So if someone sneezed or coughed in the room a while ago, it can still kind of be hanging out in the in the air. Who needs fleas when you've got this? The, the most attractive sounding uh, infection vector known as the fecal oral route, which means that it, sur- it survives digestion, meaning that... Oh, good. That's what that means. Yeah. It, it, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. And and I mean, 
it sounds a little more direct in the in the name of the the disease uh, the the infection vector but generally what that means is uh not washing your hands after using the washroom uh, really spreads around the disease as does improper separation of wastewater and drinking water which is where you get things like cholera outbreaks being really prevalent in places with poor uh, water sanitation for example it's a pretty common route but there are also a lot of diseases that are destroyed by the digestion process so it's not every disease that can be transmitted that way we basically just listed pretty much every way a disease can be transmitted like ever so animal carriers check uh sexual contact check uh any other physical contact sneezing coughing just anything being in the same room Uh, being being in the same room at different times even so, needless to say, this is very contagious. It's an incredibly hardy bacteria. And catching it is one thing, but your body fighting it off is another. Don't worry, it's got that covered too. <laughs> oh, good. Whew. Here's, here's the fun thing about the, the Y-pestis bacteria. The way that the, the physical bacterium is constructed, it is phagocytosis resistant. Phagocytosis is the process by which your T cells, your white blood cells, you've seen like the little uh, uh, microscopic slide videos, I'm sure, where they basically wrap themselves around uh, a foreign cell and eat them, they absorb them and destroy them inside their their bodies. It's, it's basically coded so that they can't be eaten without it destroying the white blood cell. They're essentially immune resistant the, the, the very mechanism that our body uses to fight infection is very ineffective against right. this bacteria. Good, right? It's, that's the fun thing. That's the fun thing. <laughs> Symptoms can take up to seven days to appear after you've been infected, although it can be qu- as quick as a few hours. It just kind of depends on how much of a dose you got, how good your uh, your immune system is. I mean... It's not that your immune system can't fight this off. It's that it is fighting at a significant disadvantage. And the symptoms are just atrocious. So the the classic standard bubonic plague, when you get it, is kind of starts off a lot like a flu. Uh, you get that sort of like muscle ache thing, fevers, chills. You get um, malaise, which is one of those symptoms that sounds kind of made up until you've experienced like a really bad flu which is just like you feel terrible right like, there's nothing you can really put your finger on but you feel sick everyone's experienced this to some extent it's it's not fun hmm. but then it gets worse you can um, have seizures especially in very small children sometimes it comes to uh, uh, vomiting blood depending on the form you get there can be gangrene ulcers um, other kind of necrosis of the skin and the most emblematic symptom is what's known as buvos which are basically your lymph nodes swell up to the point that they look like giant blisters generally described as approximately walnut sized mm. and that's like above the skin mm-hmm. right um so your lymphatic your lymphatic system is what spreads your white blood cells around it's it's what facilitates your entire immune system it's connected directly to your bloodstream it's what gets 
uh, your immune cells to where they need to be. But because uh, Y. pestis is resistant, it can actually hijack your lymphatic system, multiply inside it, and use it as basically a backdoor to every single part of your body. Still... You're not saying a lot here, Colin. I'm, not... I'm watching you react, but like you're not actually verbally expressing it. Tell me how you feel right now. <laughs> These aliens are jerks. That's all I have to say. It's pretty terrible, right? Sounds pretty bad. And it sounds like a perfect storm mm-hmm. of crap. Just... It's very, very bad. Yeah. So that's the standard form. And if you got that today... Which, by the way, you can. This has not been eradicated from every part of the world. Really? It's not been eradicated from some parts of the world that you might think that it's been eradicated from. Excuse me, I have to go home and lock myself in a sealed room. We're good in Canada. We're okay here. Kleenex boxes on my feet. There are usually at least a couple cases every few years in like northern Arizona, northern New Mexico, which are like not the places that you'd think you'd find the black plague yeah some of the other places are just kind of a little bit more expected but still you know india equatorial africa madagascar but still you also see the occasional case crop up in spain or in you know like in 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 very much a a a developed country that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see it now if you got it today we have what's what's known as penicillin which is very effective against bacteria and is is especially, you know, it, it doesn't run into the same problems with Y. pestis that your immune system does. Uh, penicillin uh, still destroy, destroys uh, the plague by the same mechanisms as it destroys, um, you know, your, your, your infection or, you know, whatever. Are you telling me they didn't have penicillin in 1300s? <laughs> it took us a while to find that one. <laughs> If you got it today with modern antibiotics and keeping hydrated properly and all of that, the uh, the, the general uh, chances of, of survival are about 90%, which means there's still a 10% chance of death. But to put that into perspective, that's the same death rate of influenza, right. which is, you know, particularly hard on the elderly or children and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people globally per year die from the flu. So 10% sounds high. It's not. It's about on par. It's, it's I mean, you don't want it. I wouldn't say go looking for it, <laughs> but it's, 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 a, it's certainly a manageable disease today with, uh, with proper medical treatment. If How does it stay around? Like, after all these years... So the problem with dealing with the plague is that the way that you develop a vaccine is that you take a weakened form of whatever disease, generally. You introduce it to the body. You have uh, white blood cells form antibodies against that particular foreign body, and your, your, your immune system learns to fight it. The problem here is that it is specifically designed well no it's not designed it's it's uh, you know no one designed this um but the the, the very nature aliens <laughs> sorry i'll drop it anytime now the, the very the very nature of this bacteria is that antibodies can be produced but that doesn't actually allow the white blood cells to attack it so there's two ways of going about making a vaccine one 
gets your body to create the antibodies, but doesn't actually um, protect you against the vaccine or against the bacteria. So that means that the vaccine itself could make you incredibly ill. And then the other form gives your body like a, a completely um, ineffective form of Y pestis. Like uh, it won't hurt you in any way, but it's actually not strong enough to create any antibodies, any resistance whatsoever. So they are constantly kind of playing around with a vaccine for this uh, disease. But two things. Number one, they've been working on a vaccine for this since 1897 and have not managed to find one that's uh, that's effective enough to bother deploying, mm. uh, except in very, very specialized cases, such as people researching this bacteria or people going to an area that is currently ex- experiencing an outbreak. The other thing here is that while you can still get it, there are there's been less than 200 deaths per year since like the 50s Mm. so people tend to focus on things like say malaria for example that have thousands and thousands of cases a year versus this which is kind of a bit of a a freak accident when it does actually come up right but the yeah the, the nature of the disease makes it very resistant to vaccination if you got this standard version of bubonic plague uh, and you didn't have modern uh, medicine supporting you, your chances of death at the point where you had swollen lymph nodes, uh, generally, by the way, uh, in, in your inner thigh or groin area, because it would infect the lymph node that it got to first, and fleas tend to bite you on the legs, therefore. Um, however, some people did get in their necks or their armpits, which are also major lymphatic centers. Once you got those buvos, you had about a 20% chance of survival. Mm. Some people better, some people worse. But, you know, we're, we're, we're talking statistics here. Let's talk about more fun versions that you could get uh, if the disease progressed. Because this is just assuming that your body eventually manages to either fight off this infection in the lymphatic system or just succumbs to the disease. Right. There's two main variations. One is the pneumonic plague, uh, as in pneumonia. And that's when the plague manages to get into your lungs, at which point it's very similar to pneumonia from any other cause. Uh, You're going to get fluid on the lungs. Uh, Your lungs are going to become inflamed and swollen, which just makes breathing that much harder. And that results in coughing and sneezing, which is highly infectious. It's a very fast way of spreading the disease around. Progresses really quickly to really bad headaches, spitting blood, you know, very low oxygen levels, really nasty stuff just kind of takes your lungs apart. Not a fun way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you start coughing, if, you, if you've gotten the buboes and then you start coughing, you've got about a 5% chance of living at this point. Or your other option, <laughs> you don't look excited for some reason. You look like you're winding up for a doozy. So I'm trying to get excited here. I'm... Septicemic plague. Uh... That's when it gets into the blood. Okay. If it gets into the blood, we get back to those fun biofilms that we talked about earlier. Oh, right. Remember the biofilms? It can deploy biofilms in your veins and arteries. Great. Which in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. Your bloodstream is actually very good at kind of filtering things out. But the problem is that the way it tends to filter things like this out is through clotting. The blood clots can, depending where they are cut off blood flow to certain portions of your body so generally extremities you're going to start seeing fingers toes blacken at the ends 
Um, They'll just lose all circulation and fall off, basically. Yeah. Um, You'll also see ulcers break out on on various uh, spots on your body, depending on, like, if you you manage to kind of block off both ends uh, at a point on your body, it'll just kind of start dying off, which is pretty terrible. Um, But what comes next is possibly even worse, which is saying something. Um, (laughs) You clot so much that, you know, we tend to think about things happening on a biological level as kind of they just keep happening like it seems like kind of an infinite resource because generally we don't put that much stress on our bodies day to day you can run out of the proteins needed for clotting like your body just needs time to regenerate that it can it can run out of clotting material which means that now your blood can't clot which means that as tissue decays from gangrene you start getting hemorrhaging either externally or uh, internally. So you get internal bleeding um, often into organs. This gets to a point where you are bleeding so badly internally and you have lost the ability to clot that the blood will just start coming up through your skin, through your pores. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It starts as like a purple rash and and it just kind of bleeds through your skin. Then you get into spitting and vomiting blood. can lead to uh, what's known as uh, meningeal plague, which is meningitis. So if it manages to cross the blood-brain barrier, it can cause swelling of the brain. If you had the bubonic plague and your cheeks go rosy, uh, you're going to die. There is a near 100% chance of fatality at that point. Woo! The plague, everyone. Aren't you glad you picked this fun topic? I'm so glad. So fun. (laughs) <laughs> it's i mean what what could i have expected right <laughs> it's like well funny story it's actually super pleasant yeah that's that's not quite how this is gonna work out <laughs> i'm sorry to say we talked a little bit about what modern medicine can do for this which is mainly put you on a course of very aggressive antibiotics and um you should be okay hopefully fingers crossed if we caught it caught it uh soon enough um but likely you'll be fine what about hundreds of years ago? Mm-hmm. Remember I said that modern medicine had basically been founded in the 1850s? So what would they do for something like this back then? Here, here's the fun thing about that fact, is that the, the medicine that ended in the 1850s started more than 2,000 years ago. Medicine is a really interesting field in history in that it is one of the most constant and stagnant parts of our knowledge base as a species. Hmm. We just didn't really learn that much. And there's a number of reasons for that, and we'll get into it a little bit. Likely the version of, of medicine that was practiced in the 14th century and, and long before was developed by the Egyptians or maybe even the Mesopotamians. It's known as humorism. And a lot of this is going to sound pretty familiar to you, I'm sure. Because for some odd reason, there's there's aspects of this that just haven't gone away. Uh, but, you know, also because it's it's interesting in its own right. The it, it was codified by the Greeks, though. And like most of the things that the Greeks did, it's ascribed to one specific, very smart Greek person named Hippocrates. The Greeks have this habit, and we talked about this uh, in the in the last topic I did for astronomy. They had a habit of like any discoveries just being attributed to somebody like very famous and very smart, 
So you'll get certain names that repeat. And when you're talking medicine and you're talking Greek, Hippocrates is going to come up. You may have heard of him. Hippocrat? Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. Um, no, he didn't. It was named after him. But in any case, <laughs> about 400 BCE, he was writing about the four humors and their place in uh, the health of the human being. The four humors are blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And it was believed that each of these humors had an effect on our physiology and that for a person to be healthy, uh, they had to be in the proper balance. Now, balance doesn't necessarily mean the same quantities of each humor within the body. It does mean that there is a certain proportion that you should have of each one. And if you have too much of one or too little of one, that it can uh, have an adverse effect on the overall health of the person. Okay. And you get into you know, which humors are produced by which organs, you know, the blood is produced by the liver and phlegm is produced by the brain and also the lungs. And, um, you know, you get into an issue where the phlegm that you're talking about in uh, humorism isn't actually what we would necessarily call phlegm. It's a, it's a completely different substance. And you get into this really difficult problem, which is not actually being able to find half the humors just like in a physical form in the body anywhere. The problem is that it makes absolutely no actual physical sense. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's very much a, a philosophical system as it is a, a medical system because uh, you get a lot of relation to, then to the four elements uh, or the four classical elements, right? Um, fire, water, earth, and air. Each of those have their corresponding humors, and it, it's all it's all very neat and tidy. Each of the humors has a uh, a nature either hot or cold and wet or dry. There's this belief that different foods or different herbs had qualities about them that would uh, either inhibit or elicit production of certain humors, so that you know if if a person was particularly prone to uh, a disease that was cold and wet for some reason. I, I I don't have a specific example for you there. They should eat lots of foods that are considered hot and dry uh, to balance that out. You see some of some reflection of that naming system today in certain foods, like wine being dry or uh, uh, spicy food being hot. In fact, when chili peppers were first brought to Europe from the New World, there was a massive medical debate over whether or not they were hot or cold. And and that's the trouble, right? Is This is a completely made up uh, system. And so when you find anything new, you have to cram it in somewhere. I didn't know about any of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, calling calling wine dry is kind of a an odd descriptor, right? I suppose like so. Yeah. Um, and, and again, we've lost a lot of this, but not all of it. Um, there's there's still some kind of hanging around in our in our lexicon. There's there's ghosts of it. So if a human being had too much or too little of something, it would cause disease. And disease was always a reflection of uh, an excess or um, not enough of a certain humor. And it was a doctor's job to figure out which humor was out of balance and to then do what they could to rectify that situation. That's where you get practices like bloodletting, which is generally because you have too much blood. And, well, there's a real quick way to get that out of you. Right. Yep. So, I mean, they were doing any actual science at the time. There's an interesting theory for where the four humors come from. 
Um, this is pure speculation, but I like it enough that I'm willing to include this in the in, in the show because I, I find it very interesting. Uh, in the in the 20s, in 1921, there was a, a Swedish physician. I think it's pronounced Phareas. Uh, I could be completely wrong on that, but he noted that if you take human blood and you put it in a graduated cylinder that's clear and leave it for about an hour, it'll separate out. And when it separates, it, it stratifies, right? And so at the bottom, you get um, clotted blood. Uh, next, you get red blood, red blood cells that haven't clotted. Then you get white blood cells. And finally, at the top, you get like the serum, right? Like the um, plasma. Plasma, right. Clots are basically black. Red blood cells are red. White blood cells are kind of a, an off-white color. So phlegm, uh, and then the, the, the plasma is a, a yellowish color, so yellow bile. It gives you the four colors. It gives you the four pieces of, of, of human humors. Um, huh. And the speculation, and again, purely speculative. Right. There's no guarantee that this is what happened You know, more than 2,500 years ago in Egypt or Mesopotamia. But his speculation is that, no, there's the four humors right there. You can actually see them. It's interesting. I think it's far more likely that it was a convenient system based on uh, a really limited knowledge of physiology and biology. And um, the, the Greeks already had a bad habit of, of uh, kind of changing the world around them to fit their philosophical views rather than the other way around. Um, again, see astronomy. Boy. I'm just like, this medicine wouldn't work. Hmm. At some point, wouldn't they be like, we should try something else? So... The problem, <laughs> the problem there is that sometimes it did mm. and not because they were right about anything, but because it just happened to work out that way. The funny thing about medicine, especially when you're talking about, say, 2000 years ago, is that most things left untreated will do, you know, one of two things. Uh, it'll either get better on its own uh, or you'll die. And... If you die, the doctor's probably not going to talk about those ones. Doesn't make them look great. And if it gets better, it may as well have been the medicine. Why not? Yeah. I mean, you explain it. You don't know anything about the uh, immune system at this point in time. You don't know anything about microorganisms. Uh, you're not entirely sure how many teeth women have versus men. That was a real thing. They thought they had different numbers of teeth. <laughs> this is not great science that we're working with here. <laughs> and Fair so enough. sometimes... You know, say, for example, if you've got a fever uh, and you get cut and you lose a lot of blood um, and you pass out from that, that will relieve some of your fever uh, uh, symptoms. Not because it's good for you, because now your body is dealing with physical trauma, <laughs> but it will tend to bring your temperature down somewhat, mainly because if you get cut open and lose that much blood at any time, your temperature will go down. <laughs> so sometimes it works. And and that's that's really the problem there is is right. it was very inconsistent. If it was a consistently wrong system, then yeah, people would definitely have questions. The other thing is there is a level of sort of practical folk medicine that goes along with this that doesn't necessarily need to fit into this system or is very kind of mutable depending on the situation. So it's it's less that okay, for example, aspirin is derived from willow bark, right? Mm -hmm. The, so there are compounds in, in willow bark tea that uh, will thin your blood slightly and, and relieve pain. You don't 
it wasn't as though someone looked at a willow tree or a willow bark specifically and went, I believe that this is whatever the qualities that are against a headache are. I'm going to assume cold and something. No one looked at willow bark tea and said this is cold and whatever, and then applied it and went, hey, I'm right. They figured out that drinking willow bark tea made you feel better and went, well, headaches are hot and whatever. This must be cold and whatever. So there's there's that aspect of, of confusion of cause and effect where where you're just taking things that we that, that you know are effective, slotting it into the system and then claiming that the system works. Right. And this humor's system of medicine is in place, like we said, uh, until in 1858, uh, Dr. Rudolf Virchow uh, managed to publish his theory of cellular pathology in which he asserted that no that's not how it's not how disease works it was still hanging around then it still took a while to go away at that point i guess they were also prescribing cocaine well i'm sure it was hot and whatever general time frame yeah it's definitely hot and dry (laughs) um there is a major problem though that's not being addressed by the humoral system, which is that if disease is caused by an imbalance of humors, then sure, maybe a sickness is caused by, you know, your diet or something like that. And that can help to describe your own disease. It can even maybe help to describe, say, the disease that passes from you to someone in your family in the same household because you're likely eating the same things. Or, um, you know, the, the qualities that certain people have that predispose them to being, you know, making not enough or too much of something would pass through families. Mm. So that explains that. But what about cases like the plague where things move from person to person very, very quickly? Mm-hmm. Doesn't work out so well, does it? Uh, we need an extra theory on top to make that work. Um, but I think we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something called miasma. I'm excited. Hey guys, just two quick things I wanted to mention here during the break. Uh, First off, I don't actually say anything during uh, recording until part two, but this is the third anniversary of the launch of this show. I've now been doing this for three years and uh, just wanted to say something about it. Um, it's been really, really cool watching this show grow, uh, hearing from all of you guys listening. And um, yeah, I just really wanted to say thanks for sticking with the show, helping it grow, telling people about it, um, supporting me in so many different ways. So if you want to do something cool for me for the anniversary, uh big thing you could do is tell other people about it maybe mention it on twitter maybe uh rate and review on itunes is a massive help for uh basically any podcast that you're enjoying so um yeah thank you so much everyone second thing i wanted to mention is i didn't realize it until the entire thing had been recorded i'm so sorry there's a little bit of ambient noise on this episode um specifically a little bit of coughing which is kind of ironic given the subject material did my best to scrub that out but um yeah the uh, microphones were picking up a little bit more ambient noise than i expected so really sorry about all of that um so now that you know that that's not all in your head just because we're talking about the plague um let's get back to the episode so thank you so much 
All right, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we got a little bit into uh, into the weeds on humorism, which is how we did medicine uh, for a very long time. And this isn't just Western Europe, by the way. The Middle East basically adopted Greek humorism uh, as is. The Indian subcontinent had its own version that's basically Ayurvedic medicine. You, you're, you've likely heard of that. It's Indian traditional medicine, which is very, very, very similar. It's not the same. Things aren't necessarily classified the same between humorism and Ayurvedic, which tells you a little bit about the classification systems of both. Um, but you're you're dealing with a similar thing where, where certain elements are pre- present in certain ratios in the human body. Chinese medicine is also based on similar uh, principles. So while not strictly Western humorism, the, the medical traditions are very, very similar throughout the entire new world. Kind of weird. I mean, there's a level of understanding that you can achieve about human biology before the advent of the microscope. And it's not high. The other problem is that most cultures had some sort of prohibition on conducting autopsies. Um, Why? They're the super sanctity, useful. The sanctity of the person. Uh. It, it is very much about the relationship between what's left over after a person's gone and the person who did the leaving. And th- this taboo against uh, handling dead bodies is nearly universal. There are different qualifications given for it. I mean, some of it is is rather practical, actually, when you think about it. Uh, the, the, the level of disease carried by uh, by corpses is is unsafe for people to be just kind of handling them in general. And, yeah, so, and if they didn't have the practices to, you know, work around that, I can mm-hmm. understand. Yeah, and 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 so you know when you when you're dealing with a medical landscape that uh, wouldn't really discover the joys of hand washing until the latter half of the 19th century, maybe poking around in human bodies is not the best idea. But as I said, there is also a, a level of, of cultural taboo behind it. Um, it's funny, a lot of those taboos do have very, very practical roots when you look into it. Again, a lot of that is, is speculative, but a lot of it makes some, uh, some good sense when you really think about it. Yeah, they probably would have figured out the fact that you were more likely to get a disease from a corpse. Yeah, and whether that ends up being uh, categorized as, say, a curse or possession by demons or, or however you want to frame that. I mean, we are, again, uh, dealing with a, a, a gross misunderstanding of infection and disease. So, uh, it, 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 yeah, um, cutting, up, cutting up dead bodies was, was not a, a very common practice. And you, you get to a point where it's so taboo that you don't even necessarily consider that a viable avenue for learning more about human physiology. You kind of put blinders on yourself, mm. just societally speaking. I don't know how you're supposed to move forward. You don't for 2,000 years is the answer to oh, that. Oh, okay. I think, yeah, okay. The other problem, though, is that, you know, the understanding of just what different systems in the body are for, what they do, is is a, a long ways out. because The some liver of those, makes blood? Well, they, yeah, they do still believe that the liver makes blood, um, which is kind of not really exactly... But I, I mean, a really good example of that would be um, when when you look at Egyptian burial practices, 
and the uh, you know they they would um, remove certain important organs and embalm them separately, right? Uh, put them in their own little jars. Uh, I believe they're called Coptic jars. I could be wrong on that. They would they would keep the heart because they understood that the heart was important, and that's an easy one. If someone's heart is beating, they're alive. If it's not, they're dead. The relation to the circulatory system again wouldn't really be discovered until the 19th century or so but you know okay well that one's definitely important same with the lungs breathing absolutely liver definitely seems important <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it must be doing something in there yeah but the egyptians would just kind of scoop out the brain and throw it away there was no appreciation for any importance there they didn't really understand what it was for it was believed that the soul uh lived in the heart uh rather than in the head and and if you want to uh you know get super you know get into some metaphysical stuff i I mean maybe the brain would be a better choice for location but you know when when you when you have no sense of what the what the nervous system is for what it does what it you know it's just kind of just kind of lump up there who knows what it's up to yeah it's it's a really tricky thing we take anatomy for granted no i know we can make fun yeah but uh I, I, different times yeah I, i'm i'm constantly amazed by the things that we've managed to figure out as it is anyways we're we're wildly off topic here that's okay that's what this show's for but exactly. let's try and bring it back around Anyways. um we were st- we were speaking specifically about infectious diseases and 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 moving through populations where um it doesn't make sense that uh, an individual's humors are are the issue that's causing the disease and that's where something called uh miasma comes in and miasma basically means uh, uh, bad air. This this term would be translated in another in a number of different ways. That's the the Greek term, and it carried through for a long time. The Romans would call it nebula or or fog, and in uh, in a, or in uh, Italian, it would eventually be called uh, malaria, mal bad air, which we eventually get that that disease's name from. But but it had a completely different meaning at its inception. The idea was that it was possible for these toxic poisonous vapors to exist in the air that would either sort of sap away one of your humors uh, if you breathed it in or inhibit your ability to produce one of those humors uh, if you breathed it in. It kind of had like a very immediate effect on your personal physiology. And as an explanation for an incredibly contagious virulent disease without a working knowledge of microscopy uh, okay did they think that the bad air was at least coming from the other people who had bad humors often it was believed that the diseases could cause the person to produce more miasma yes uh in the specific case of the bubonic plague it was believed that those ulcers that would open up on your skin that there were uh worms that lived in these ulcers that were just puking out bad air and that's why it was so easy to catch the plague from someone uh who had it i had trouble figuring out where the worms in particular came into this i have a feeling it's probably that conditions were so bad that people were getting those wounds infected and you could see literal Actual, worms in them yeah um i mean the idea of of maggots in rotting flesh is not much of a stretch mm-hmm. hey cool topic <laughs> <laughs> yay 
these this this miasma was very closely related to like actually like bad smelling air so like bad smells became tied to disease and this seems kind of like a bit of a stretch until you consider that some of the most infectious things in people's lives would actually smell very very bad corpses uh human waste uh infected gangrene flesh yeah yeah, that it smells very bad uh dead animals you know like this this is all not good even even things like um musty grain which could potentially be harboring uh a fungal infection right It, it it again within the framework that they're working with here it's a good instinct there's going to be a lot of um, circumstantial evidence to support it. And so the idea of staying away from bad smelling stuff isn't a bad tendency in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you do get as a result is this idea that if you keep things smelling really good around you, that will protect you from infections. <laughs> so you. Sorry, it all seemed. You made it reasonable, like for a while there. Sure. Well, and, and, and that's that's the thing about ancient medicine is that it seems reasonable for a while and then all of a sudden someone <laughs> takes something and, and um, just runs it out absurdium yeah. and all of a sudden you get people carrying around bouquets of flowers. The, the bouquets of flowers that brides carry, it's for their health. It's, really? That's where the tradition goes to. I mean, they look very nice too. I suppose. But, but it's man. to breathe into. Yeah, okay. It's to breathe into so you've got good air so you don't get sick. All right. That's that's a proposed explanation of it, anyways. Fair enough, yeah. But again, one rooted in reality because during during plague years, people would wear uh, flowers uh, next, like on their faces, next to their noses, to try and keep the air good uh, and to protect themselves from the the miasma. Now, th- again, this all sounds crazy. Miasma theory was up for debate as recently as. 1854. Have you ever heard of the Broad Street Pump? No. In 1854, there was an outbreak of cholera in London. And the, uh, the, the predominant theory at the time was that there was something causing miasma in that general area. There was bad air around that pump. There was something wrong with it. And it wasn't even specifically the, the pump necessarily that was causing the miasma. They just knew that on Broad Street, there was some sort of miasma being produced. And one Dr. John Snow, who had been keeping up with the, the very, very, very recent developments on um, microbial organisms, basically went, I think there might be a disease in the water and um, campaigned for shutting down the pump. And everyone, went, what are you talking about? It's a miasma. There's nothing wrong with the water. Water's clean. It smells good. Um, <laughs> and he had to fight to have the, the pump shut down to the point where he, he went and shut it down himself. And um, it turned out he was right. And and this is one of the things that, that uh, kind of moved us towards a cellular uh, pathology theory of medicine that we work with uh, today. It's I'm a sorry, very interesting I'm sorry story. for this horrible distraction. If you, do you watch Game of Thrones? I do. If you, are you, like, caught up on it? Yeah. I, I just heard you know nothing Jon Snow in my head. I just, mm-hmm. just put that out there. I mean, it is a very common name. It's 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 around quite a bit. There's, I believe, a, a British news anchor named Jon Snow. Huh. Um, it's yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's there's a few of them out there, but it is always a little bit shocking to come across a, a real person named Jon Snow. 
I, I mean, that's that's what they're that's what we're working with in terms of of infectious theory. Yeah. And and when we're talking about the 14th century, we're 500 years away from that. 500 years away from kind of sort of starting to move yeah. away. From. We're 500 years away from Louis Pasteur. We are 500 years away from like all these like pioneers of modern medicine who finally started figuring out like just even the slightest inkling of what's going on with our health. Yeah. People didn't have a chance against the plague. We as a species were not equipped for the plague. Not even remotely. And it's not a good disease to get now. With with 2017 medicine, it's not a great thing to pick up. You're kind of out of luck if you got it. And a lot of people are going to get it, Colin. Historically speaking, the biggest problem with this understanding of medicine is that we don't really have records of historical diseases the way that we necessarily like to have them because a disease isn't really classified the same way that it is now i mean you you get bacterial cultures or you do testing for the the type of virus that you have and it's all pretty clearly cut what a disease is we don't even necessarily need to do all of that to recognize a specific disease based on a set of symptoms there's easier diagnostic uh, methods of, of figuring that out but someone somewhere has done the work to isolate that specific bacteria that that species as causing it or that virus as causing it right then i mean if they're going to describe the the the, the disease at all it's going to be in terms of which humors are in excess or in deficit and if we're very lucky someone will go ahead and write down the symptoms and then what we get is historians or sometimes doctors neither of which are really great uh, or, or are very well equipped to do this guessing at what a disease might be based on the writings of somebody centuries ago so you hope that their descriptions are precise enough that you can make the, the diagnosis you hope that they're complete Insert joke about bad doctor handwriting here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, you uh, you have to hope that people don't have two diseases at the same time, which, let's face it, happened a lot. Right. And then you get into issues of um, translation, anything in any language that you don't speak or in uh, languages that are no longer spoken at all in some cases. You also run into a roadblock of, say, you uh, speak English and you are reading an English account of something. The language may have changed in ways that you don't really realize and what they're saying doesn't actually match up with the symptom that you expect it to. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of potential landmines there. And historians aren't doctors. They're not really great at doing the whole diagnosing thing. And doctors aren't historians. They aren't really great at the whole historical context thing. So you get some people who are specialized in both, which is, by the way, a fascinating field, but it's tricky. It's really tricky. And so the, the best we can do is, is kind of look at this mix of academic or philosophical theories about disease that are built on a framework that we now recognize as false. And you're trying to fit that into the current scientific framework of medicine. And it doesn't always work that well and that's why we're not entirely sure 
which disease it was that these people are getting. Right. So even though bubonic plague still exists today, mm-hmm. we're kind of just saying, well, this kind of matches the mm-hmm. symptoms that we've managed to extract from these really crappy, quote-unquote, historical documents. Yes. Pretty much. It's a tricky situation. It's a very tricky spot to be in. You're, you're talking about things that they're constructs of our understanding of the world, and we're trying to apply them to a world that did not have these constructs. And it's really difficult. So the plague, was it uh, hot, cold, wet, dry? What are we looking at here? You know, as much as I read about humorism preparing for this, I didn't check what the actual quadrant was that it falls into. Just um, curious. Bloodletting was very common as a treatment for it. So I'm guessing it's hot and hot and wet, I believe. I think that's right. Definitely hot, possibly wet, because too much blood made you hot and wet. I'll double check and I'll stick it in the notes, but that's why you let off some blood. And that's why it gave you headaches. And that's why it gave you a fever and a wet cough. But that would be that would be my best guess based on what I remember. Seems reasonable. It's a, hey, it's, it's a good question. I should have been more prepared for oh, it. <laughs> um, hey, let's talk about Rome. Cool. I, uh, I've, I've been looking at how I want to tackle this subject, and I don't think we're actually getting to the 14th century in the first half. So um, <laughs> let's, let's keep on rolling with this because, I, you know, this is, this is important too. And we all know about the Black Death, and we all know that the medieval period was kind of terrible. But it's not the first time that the bubonic plague did a number on Europe. Mm. And so that's why we're going to go back a little bit further to start. Cool. In Rome, plagues tended, because we don't have that medical framework, to be named after whatever emperor happened to be reigning at the time of the plague. They name it after the person in charge? Mm-hmm. That's odd. Yeah, so like in the second century, there was the Antonine Plague, which we're pretty sure now is smallpox. Huh. But all we know it as is the Antonine Plague. But we're looking at the sixth century um, with the Justinian Plague. Just to give you a bit of background during the third century there was a a major political crisis and the roman empire was administratively divided into by um what's known as the diocletian reforms this is the point in time where um constantinople became uh, a major administrative center when we talk about it now we'll talk uh, about the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, and then after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, uh, the Byzantine Empire as replacing it. None of these names actually would have meant anything to anyone in the 6th century. The Romans themselves never saw the two administrative capitals as being uh, a true political split. It was just a, uh, a function of efficiency. Mm. The empire had become too big, and the way that you deal with that is two different imperial courts. Denial. Um, but all of them, <laughs> but all of them are Romans, right? So, likewise, uh, no one ever called it the Byzantine Empire until modern times. That's just something that helps us kind of differentiate the uh, the culturally Greek uh, later Eastern Roman Empire, right? Which would happen after you know the the Western half of the empire fell and they kind of lost ties to that that Latin heritage. But the time that we're going to talk about here is not that long after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. That's one of those dates that actually is hazier than I think most people realize. 
the convention usually is to pin the fall of the Western Roman Empire at uh, 476 CE when the Ostrogoths sack the city of Rome. It's not quite that clear cut because like other emperors are installed in the West, but they're not properly legitimate emperors. And like it, it just it's a bit more of a slow death. Oh, very much so. I mean, there's there's arguments that it took a couple hundred years really for it to completely die. But let's let's use that 476 for sake of a shorter story, because that's not what we're here to talk about. Not that long after uh, an emperor comes to the throne in uh, Constantinople, uh, Justinian I, he ruled for, uh, uh, from 527 to 565 CE. So 50 years later give or take um not bad it's not that long after and when he looked west he didn't see a a, a lost and fallen empire he saw uh his empire that was temporarily occupied and that it was his duty to go back and reoccupy this territory and so he began uh he began uh military campaigns to the west um started with taking on uh, the Vandals in North Africa, so p- taking back northern Egypt uh, all the way into uh, modern-day Tunisia, where the city of Carthage stood at the time, um, and across most of, of northern Africa, actually. So that was all taken over by uh, the Byzantine Empire. He sounds like a bit of a, uh, a loose cannon. Justinian I, he's also known by some as Justinian the Great. He's not universally well-loved, but most uh rulers with the epithet the great have some controversy behind them you right don't, you don't get called the great without doing some big bold things yeah um he's also a man of culture i mean he's uh he's the one who commissioned the the building of the hagia sophia he rewrote uh, roman law basically from the ground up it was this weird amalgamation of of centuries of precedent that was being used he he made it into kind of one cohesive uh body of work that in some form or another is still used as civil law in some countries today Hmm. uh, with massive uh changes to it of course but that's it's it's still being kicking around for uh, nearly 1500 years that's that's pretty impressive yeah get on him but i mean he's also spending a lot of money here like a lot of money it's it's not a cheap thing to wage uh, a war halfway across a continent as well as uh, attend to the uh, cultural and uh, legal needs of your people. Oh, he was also instrumental in, in uh, coordinating some uh, religious reforms, kind of getting Constantinople back in harmony with the, the Roman bishops or the, the Pope. That was a, a big issue at the time because Italy was uh, was occupied by the Goths and the most important person in the unified church at the time was... Uh, it's in the middle of enemy territory, so it's a tricky thing. So after finishing with the Vandals in North Africa, uh, he moved into the Italian peninsula using um, uh, Sicily as a jumping off point. So he moved from uh, Tunisia into Sicily and then up into uh, into Italy from the south and was relatively successful, at least to start off. Um, it's worth noting that at the end of the Western Roman Empire, Rome wasn't actually the capital even of the Western Roman Empire anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had moved it. It doesn't make sense to administrate from down south of the the Alps. Um, so they, they had moved it north to uh, uh, Ravenna. They, uh, the, the Byzantine Empire managed to lay siege to Rome, uh, and things were going relatively well. If things had stayed on course, and as much as I hate 
speculating in, in history. Uh, that's going to be something that we do a lot of today because we're going to be talking about a lot of what ifs. Um, if they had stayed the course, there was a good chance that they might have been able to take a good portion of the uh, uh, the old glory of the Roman Empire back. Right. But instead... In 541, plague broke out in Constantinople. We've done genetic testing on some of the mass graves that they were forced to make because the body count was so high they couldn't perform proper burial rituals. It looks like the um, the bacteria that was killing all of these people was Y. pestis, and it looks like it originated in China and moved its way through the ancient Silk Road and into Constantinople. Constantinople was a was a trade hub at that point, just as it is today. It's it's always occupied that just geographical space, um, as well as economic. But it wasn't directly through the Silk Road. It was actually through uh, uh, by way of Egypt. Constantinople at the time was so huge that farms in the general area couldn't support the citizens, and um, they were forced to import grain from Egypt, which is incredibly fertile farmland um, in the Nile Delta, they would just import shiploads of grain. And Egypt uh, kept massive storehouses of it. These storehouses were a breeding ground for rats. Because mm-hmm. if you're a rat, what's better than a, like all the grain that you could possibly eat in your entire life? Yeah, pretty good. Along with rats come fleas. So the Egyptians are sending up boatloads of grain that has both rats and fleas in it. And the rest kind of writes itself. The historian Procopius recorded that the disease was killing 10,000 people a day. This is likely an exaggeration. Hmm. However, in general, calling it 5,000 a day is considered a a reasonable estimate. All of the death totals that we're going to be talking about, as well as all the population totals, are going to be very approximate in all of this. It's not like censuses were done on a regular (laughs) basis or were done incredibly accurately. Likewise, death records weren't kept particularly well, even in times of peace, let alone the the chaos that goes along with a massive uh, outbreak of disease like this. Um, People are being literally left in gutters. And it is a necessity. It is a it is a, a matter of survival. Um, Procopius also uh, recorded that this was definitely Justinian's fault, and this is going to be something that we're going to see a little bit more of as we go along. People need something to blame. Is it because he left? Ah, uh, ask who you like about why it's Justinian's fault, and you'll get as many answers as people. This guy's spending a lot of money. He is building lavish buildings. He is going to war. He is instituting legal reforms. He is instituting religious reforms. Pick one of those that you dislike and and just sort of apply the wrath of God for that reason. And you have the Justinian plague. Wrath of God either way. Pretty much. But. Well, I mean, in the thing that's kind of amazing about ancient life that we've kind of shifted entirely away from in the modern world is that populations were very steady city sizes were very steady like things didn't change fast you could expect somebody four or five generations separate from you to leave lead basically the same life that you are leading 
we currently live in an age of, of exponential population growth and the idea that there are constantly more people in the world today than there were yesterday is just kind of something that we've accepted most people just kind of lived a, a, a very normal, very similar life to all the people around them. Individual exceptionalism wasn't really uh, a big part of people's worldview. I, I mean, this is a this is a very different world. And the only real reference that someone in sixth century Constantinople has for pestilence on the level of five thousand people dying per day is literally biblical. It is the wrath of God coming down on the Egyptians. And when you are someone with no understanding of medicine, whose life has just been turned upside down, who has one in three people around them just dropping dead with seemingly no rhyme or reason, what else do you blame? Yeah. It's fair. So uh, the emperor then... Mm -hmm. Um, obviously to blame yes very, very clearly if i were him i'd probably stay out on the road oh he caught the plague himself okay he managed to survive it oh there were other members of the royal court though who were not so lucky and i mean the, the really important thing that i, I want to get across because i mean it's it's one thing to point out that you know in in a couple of very short years the the total death toll was somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 million people and this is you know, not just in the Byzantine Empire, but also throughout uh, the Middle East, North Africa, India, China, where this has come from. But 25 million people died. That's that's nearly the population of our entire country. Just gone. Yeah. What eventually stops it? Just such a decrease in population that it can't move around anymore? That's a very good candidate. That's a very good candidate for why it stopped. Yeah. Um, another thing that happens is there aren't enough people to, uh, to to operate the trade networks that are spreading these things around. Right. Uh, trade grinds to a halt. There's also now so few people that we no longer have to import grain from Egypt. The, the, the farms around Constantinople can now support it properly. It's a, it's a massive upset to, uh, to public life. There's a second round that returns about 40 years later in 500 uh, in 588, and it would continue returning every few years up until the year 750. The plague doesn't just die out. It does tend to come back in waves. Hmm. It's just that that initial hit is always so hard. Right. The descriptions of the disease we have uh, uh, describe um, the buboes, which is why we are pretty confident. Also, the mass graves, there's been traces of Y. pestis found. It's a, an ancient strain that no longer exists, but it seems to be uh, genetically adjacent to the modern ones. So we're, we're fairly confident that's what it was. Right. That 25 million is likely over 10% of the total human population alive on Earth at that time. Jeez. It's, it's big. It's a really big deal. So this wasn't just local to, well, you already explained it. It traveled a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the, the, the Byzantine Empire was very mobile, very metropolitan. This, this spread all over the place. But when you look at the total run of this first plague, it may have killed as many as 100 million over the, the several centuries that it hung around. Maybe as much as 50% of Europe. It was big. And people don't talk about that one as much. The, the, the Black Death gets a lot of press. The Justinian Plague was 
terrible and it's a precursor of what's coming and honestly the only reason it's not talked about is that the black death is going to overshadow this and i am not exaggerating in the slightest when i say that it's gonna get bad it's gonna get worse but this is a this is round one this is giving us a taste of what we can expect massive financial pressure on the empire massive financial pressure not just because of the loss of of uh production of output but also tax revenue I mean, when you are an emperor in the 6th sixth, sixth century, you can basically expect your taxes for this year to be basically the same as the taxes for last year. And Justinian was trying to fight a war, a very important war, that his soldiers couldn't really fight. He had to take a bit of a break for a little while. And he couldn't pay his soldiers. He, um, it, it got so bad that people were having the government request that they pay the taxes of their dead neighbors as well as their own which just doesn't work and and uh you know the financial crisis was was significant i mean there was a crisis in, uh, involving inheritance law what do you do when somebody died at uh, an incredibly young age and doesn't have a will and doesn't have any surviving heirs who gets that money justinian says the state i would assume he would just say i'm gonna take all that yep how does everybody else feel about that yeah not great so did they have any i mean obviously they must have had some enemies was anybody looking to take advantage of this crisis some did um the uh the fighting in the fighting in europe had absolutely stalled out they they made some more progress in fact they ended up eventually taking rome over the next couple of decades it would change hands three more times though until eventually in uh, 568 it was lost completely to the lombards but mainly that was because uh they were only able to leave a very small army in like the italian peninsula to protect the entire peninsula because they had no people uh and they had no money there was also um the sassanid empire which was basically persia on on their east who was more than happy to take advantage uh, of of their weakness, they had uh, they had negotiated a uh, uh, what they called an eternal peace before the uh, before the plague broke out, and uh, the eternal peace was broken after about two years. <laughs> um, yeah, the pressure for the East had a had an impact on the the war in in Europe, but you know Justinian had successfully negotiated exactly that 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 situation. The Sassanids on the east and the and the the Goths on the west, uh, just a couple of years before the plague, without any issues. All of a sudden, his people are too sick too sick to have a leg to stand on. So, in terms of what ifs, I mean, no plague, very different Roman Empire. Yeah. I, I don't think that's a controversial statement to make. The Britannic Romans at this point in time, who you know, when the when the Western Empire fell. Um, had been they had been unsupported for several decades however it was kind of you know based on the archaeological record it looks like people were living a fairly roman life in britain up until about the year 500 they were still trading with with the the byzantines uh for for some time uh which imported the the plague into the british isles there's a good chance that the anglo-saxon conquest of the, the 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 roman britons took significant advantage of of this sickness um we're not really sure because no roman britons really survived it in a meaningful way i mean they not that they were all slaughtered but they were they were um uh i mean many were killed but mainly they were assimilated into the uh 
uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, civilization, but the Anglo-Saxons didn't really keep written records of this period in time, so we don't have anything to go off of. Whether it was intentional, whether it was lucky timing, we're not sure. We also have, just a couple of decades later, the Arab-Byzantine Wars, and this is the beginning of the, the spread of uh, Islam through warfare, beginning in um, the 620s. Basically, uh, united under under Islam, the 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 Arabs began spreading uh, north and west, and they came into conflict with the Byzantine Empire, and in fact took a lot of territory from uh, what had once been the the Roman Empire. I mean, they took all of North Africa, all of that land that they had uh, that the Byzantines had only recently taken from the Vandals, um, land that you know historically had always been Roman, and. The question there is, would the Byzantines have been in a better place to stop that spread, to win that war, if they hadn't been so badly weakened by this plague? Right. The Arabs hadn't been hit terribly hard by it. They were very spread out. They weren't trading a, a terrible amount with the, the, the Byzantines. Yes, there had been some plague, but not on the, uh, the same level as what you would have seen uh, within the empire. And the, the Byzantine empire that the, that the Arabs went up against certainly wasn't uh, them at their best. Again, you're getting very speculative when you're talking about that, but um, whether uh, whether the uh, that that initial push uh, of the Arab spread would have been as successful without the plague, I I don't know. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a case to be made for no, it wouldn't have been as successful. So at the end of the day, we still don't know uh, for sure that it was Y pestis. Um, most likely it is based on the the archaeological evidence but you know doing genetic testing on something that's 1500 years old is uh sketchy to say the least uh it's a different strain of y pestis so we can't even be certain of the characteristics of that particular branch right we don't know but most evidence points to yes that's round one how you doing over there i'm good yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. It's a little bit scary stuff, eh? It is, yeah. It's scary. It's it's weird to think about how different things would have been, <laughs> um, as you were kind of saying, if that had not occurred. You can really go down a rabbit hole with yeah. uh, with speculation when it comes to to history. It's um, you know, it's fun to do with some friends over a beer or something like that. But in in terms of, I'm not sure I call this show serious discussion, <laughs> but it's it's a little closer. Um, uh, it, it doesn't always necessarily have the the biggest place. As soon as you start introducing hypotheticals, you might as well introduce basically any hypothetical you want, and the the discussion can quickly get off the rails. So like aliens, yeah, like aliens, yeah, okay. But that being said, I don't think that noting the fact that a plague is beyond human control or at the very least was at this point in time, is uh, a reason to um, discount it from that speculation. In fact, I think it, it maybe uh, makes speculation slightly more valid because when you say something like, I don't know, what if Hitler had died in World War One?" to use the, the classic, right? It's kind of like, yeah, okay, well, this isn't necessarily the most useful discussion, right? When you say something like, well, what if the plague hadn't caught hold in, in, in Constantinople? It's 
maybe a little more valid in that we have a very good picture of what it could have been like yeah. based on what it was like just a year before. Well, yeah, and also just, yeah, it feels like something very outside the realm of human control. Mm-hmm. It's like the weather, right? It's It kind of just happened with, with the state of medical science. Yeah. It may as well have been that random. It is literally a force of nature. Yeah. When you, when you talk about speculation in terms of like, what if this power had acted differently? Um, what if this government had made this decision? It's like, but they didn't. And, you know, if, if we're talking about changes in, in human behavior, then we can just change any human behavior. This is a completely external factor. Maybe the rat with the plague mm-hmm. wasn't on the boat. He yeah. didn't have the flea that bit the guy. Basically. This this is the equivalent of if 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 a if a if an asteroid landed in the middle of the Stalingrad siege, it, yep, would, about, it, would it change things? About the same death toll, depending on the <laughs> size. There, <laughs> it it just it's so it's it's so external to everything else that it makes that speculation um, uh, more tempting, at least. Definitely, if more not tempting. more valid, definitely more tempting. Twenty five million in just a couple years, nearly a hundred million by the full couple hundred years run of the justinian plague man builds the hagia sophia and gets stuck with one of the deadliest plagues in human history as his namesake and so he survived yes did he continue to rule after that yeah he ruled until his death in 565 okay um so he oversaw a lot of that uh retaking of italy he uh uh passed away before he saw italy taken back by the lombards so all in all, I mean, the, the the Roman Empire got relatively close to its old size under Justinian. Um, certainly closer to maybe its 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 size around the time of the Republic, um, plus plus all of the the holdings in in what is now Turkey. But it wasn't the full empire like it was just before the fall. Right. And um, you know, again, if if that. If that economic support had been there, if that military support had been there, who knows whether uh, he might have made an actual go of it. And uh, considering the fact that the the Byzantine Empire survived in one form or another until the 15th century, we could have been looking at a very different world. Mm-hmm. So with all those caveats about speculation and how we shouldn't do it and then going ahead and doing it anyway, uh, that's the Justinian plague. <laughs> Um, I think that's a really great place to stop for a while, take yeah, a bit of a break, good. and uh, when we come back next time, we'll uh, start talking about the 14th century, which is where uh, this all started, and uh, and get right into it. Looking forward to it, I think. Uh-oh. <laughs> the Justinian Plague was a massive disaster. The disease killed over 25 million people in a few short years, crippling what was left of the Roman Empire and leaving them militarily and economically vulnerable. It's true that the Byzantine Empire survived and continued long after the plague had died out, but it had been arguably the greatest superpower the world had known up to that point only 50 years before. Yet despite all of this, the Justinian Plague would pale in comparison to what Europe would suffer during the 14th century. Next time, we'll be exploring that disaster, as well as its far-reaching consequences. That episode will be up on June 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. 
If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.